Bellingham Folk Festival is a celebration of folk music in the heart of beautiful Bellingham, Washington in January. The festival offers three days of inspiring workshops, performances, dances, and jams for all ages and abilities. For a detailed schedule and ticket information, go to www.thebellinghamfolkfestival.com. This episode is brought to you by Jeff Bramus, recycling real estate in Bellingham since 2001. Jeff Bramus, real estate for real people. Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm David Benderlofgren. Before we get going, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who contributed to our programming last year. We love making this thing, and I'm constantly impressed by both the honesty and the vulnerability that our guests are willing to share, and by the generosity of our listeners. So thank you. Thank you for your contribution, whatever form it takes. We want to keep doing this for as long as possible, but we can't do it without you. So thanks. Our guest this episode has been playing the stages and listening rooms of Bellingham for over a decade. Before moving here, he was a frequent act at the subdued string band Jamboree, and now that he's a resident of the neighborhood he calls Cornwall Heights, Lewis Ledford can be found playing around town on a fairly regular basis. Lewis is the type of songwriter who makes it look easy. Maybe it's the nonchalance that he projects from the stage, but the hours of time that he spends honing a lyric are shrouded by his tendency to flash a wry smile while singing a turn of phrase that seems at once familiar and original. It was a sincere pleasure to sit down with Lewis for a while and talk with him about his path from Richmond, Virginia to our little city. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Lewis Ledford, welcome. Oh, am I supposed to talk? I'm sorry. Hi. Hi, David. How's it going? Good. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Can we uh, start off with a song? Um, sure. Black is a color of the night like any other As we sleepwalk together down along the river The air is heavy as we climb a levee to sea Lights of the city sparkle on the water as we dream about the ones that got pulled under. We dream about you and we dream about me. We dream about the way things used to be. You can take my hand now if you really want to, or just stay glued to some godforsaken bar stool. You better make a move. This moment will never come again. City glows like a beacon in the mist And tonight I find it hard to resist You're asking me, is this some kind of test? Well, it could be Cause despite the suffering of the people There are crows and eagles nesting in the steeples Oracles calling on some heavenly angels to come on home 
and carelessly turn the tables. Do, 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 You're asking me, is this awesome kind of test? Well, it could be. You can take my hand now if you really want to, or just stay glued to some godforsaken bar stool. You better make a move. This moment will never come again. I said you better make a move, chum. This moment will never come again. That's This Moment Will Never Come Again, the first track off of Lewis Ledford's recent release, Actually. Actually. I really love your new album, man. It sounds so good. I'm glad you listened to it. I want to talk with you about the way that you recorded this album. So it's my understanding that you essentially uh, did this all with Aaron Harmonson, mm-hmm. Seattle-based bass player, used to live in Bellingham. Mm-hmm. Can you just sort of talk about what the process was? Um, Aaron and I met for about three months in his attic in Seattle, um, much smaller room than this, and, uh, we just made a record together. Uh, uh, we, um, started with my voice and guitar or piano, and we just added stuff until it sounded done, and, um... It was great. I played a lot of stuff. Uh, Aaron played uh, uh, bass on everything, and uh, he did um, a little keyboard and a few little uh, studio trickeries. But I think we came up with something that sounds very much like a band. It's like a, it's like a ghost band or something, a shadow band that played this stuff. I, that's the way I felt about it. Yeah. It's incredible. There's so many layers. Yeah. But it doesn't, sometimes I feel like you can tell when a record is a person sort of layering on all of their own stuff, you know. Yeah. But it's, it, yeah, it really, it, sound, it sounds to me like these songs are, were sort of composed with all of the uh, layers in mind. Is that, did you have some of those sounds in your head going into it or was that sort I of like through experiments? I always have some of those sounds in my head. Um, the one thing I've been saying about this record uh, you know, uh, this is the closest thing I've ever done that sounded like what was in my skull as I composed the music because I played most of it, you know. I mean, um, it's great when you play with your friends, but every time you give something away, you know, they put their own thing to it and, um, you know, it just goes from there, which is fabulous. But, yeah, pretty much everything on the record... <laughs> in my head sounded like that. Now, there were things that I did, like there's a mandolin all over it. I never played a mandolin before. But I was hearing things like uh, little string section-y parts. And I I almost broke down a few times because, as you all know, we have lots of friends that play amazing strings in this town, and they would have, I'm sure, done it if I had asked. But uh, 
I'm like, no, I'm going to do it myself. So I, at first I was going to play violin, an, an instrument that I don't play, and that I have. You know, I have this little pile of stuff that I've picked up over the years. So I, I moved the mando to get to the violin, and I played the violin for like an hour. And I'm like, I'm never going to figure this out, but, you know, <laughs> like by next week. Yeah, that's a tall so order. So then I picked up the mando, which I never really, I mean, I'd held it because I owned it, but I never played it. And uh, I started messing around for the first time ever, you know, actually trying to play along with a recording, you know, because um, I don't know the chords on a mando. I don't know how to, you know, I still don't know the chords on a mando, uh, a few of them, but not really. Um, so I'm like, okay, this might work. And I spent a lot of time just running it, these songs, and then building these parts. So by the time I went in, down to Seattle to, like, do these dubs, I mean, I had the parts all worked out. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty much, I mean, some of the things were, you know, by default, or if that's the right way to put it, I, I just had to do something on the fly, like the Mando parts. But, um, yeah, the arrangements were, I mean, it was all arranged for sure. Do you feel like recording in a situation where, you know, you're in your friend's attic, you're not like in a studio paying for studio time or sitting around with a like a bunch of, uh, like a, a, sitting with a band or a bunch mm. of hired gun musicians, do you feel like, that process gave you access to a state of mind or sort of like a, a way of approaching these songs that's different than you've, you've had access to before? I don't know. Um, I do know that because all the tracks were built on just me and my voice, uh, there's a certain sort of lived-in vibe, you know, because it was very quiet and, and sol solemn, I guess. Uh, whereas if you record with a band, you know, as you well know, you get the rhythm down. And then sometimes I like to keep the, the scratch vocal and I like to isolate myself enough because I, I, I'm a believer in, you know, trying to get that vocal while you're playing with people because it tends to sound a little more genuine. I think we all get get a little uh, Neil Diamondy or Sh William Shatnery when you're in that, that with the headphones and singing to a backing track. So, but I think uh, yeah, with the um, with the album the way it sounds, uh, I think yes, there's certain elements. But I think if I'd have made that record anywhere, it would have hopefully you know the same kind of vibe. Uh, paying for studios is frightening, but I think. You know, if I, the best way to approach that is try not to think about it, mm. you know, because somebody's paying for something all the time. I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, Aaron, this wasn't, I mean, Aaron and I worked something out, you know, sure. no, nothing's free in the world. So I want to go back to what you said to clarify. So scratch track is uh, in, in sort of a traditional recording process. You would go in and say, play your guitar and sing your song. Mm -hmm. Uh, as the first thing you lay down. And then you sort of build the song around it with the idea that you're going to come back and put, uh, to and redo the vocals eventually, yeah, right? Yeah, and often it's with the band. So you've got a drummer and a bass player and the rhythm section all going at the same time. So the lead vocals are rarely kept. You know, they um, they come and do that later. But you you're saying that your goal was to do use the scratch track as the final... Uh, it always vocal. it always is because I think uh, when a, a musician is playing with musicians, uh, a singer, when a singer is playing with the musicians, there's a more natural sound to it than when they come back and overdub. Um, but yes, I like to get get all that done the first time around. And if it's not good, I don't have any problem with redoing it, but I like to do it 
as live as possible. When uh, I received the physical copy of this album, it was on a CD that said Office Max on it. Right, isn't that what it says? They're a sponsor of the show, aren't they? <laughs> Office Max. Can you talk about what you did to actually like put the music out in the world? So I went to you know my regular valid value village or Goodwill, you know, hunt, and I saw this huge spindle of discs, and I'd already started making the record, and I'm like, what am I going to do with it? You know, I'm not going to make a CD because I haven't had a lot of luck. Uh, selling CDs, and it's strange because it's no matter, it depends on who you're talking to. Some people are like, no, I still sell millions of CDs. My personal experience is CDs are a tough sell right now. Mm. Um, and I'm like, okay, I, I want to make it on vinyl eventually. I, at the time, I wasn't sure because uh, I only want to invest the time and money if I think it's something that needs to be put on this beautiful piece of uh, vinyl. Um, uh, but, uh, so I was like, okay, I gotta have something. So I'm going to put it on up, you know, so it's downloadable, of course. But I went, Hey, what if I bought the spindle of, uh, discs and then every element or as close to every element that goes into a package is from reclaimed materials. And, you know, my friends at Bison, uh, there was paper getting ready to go into the uh, recycle bin. This is Bison Bookbinding, which is letterpress and, and retail shop downtown, which you happen to work at. I do, I do. And uh, and um, uh, so I made the jackets out of that. And uh, even, and, and I made a, which is, you know, a lot of people do this, a lot of my f creative friends, you know, you do a little lino cut print and, you know, you hand print every one. And um, even the ink, at least for the first 20 or so, came from Allied Arts. So I was, I was really impressed about that, you know. So it's like the ink, the paper, the disc, it's all reclaimed. And not recycled. This is stuff that was, pro I mean, I guess people buy spindles of, of uh, blank CDs, but I bet a lot of them go to the landfill too. So I had this idea, yeah, everything I'm going to hustle you know, my, my, this product, this fin finished thing is going to be all, you know, saved from either the process of recycling or the landfill. Great idea, huh? I thought it was cool. And I'm still doing it, but, um, man, it, it takes a while. So we'll see how it goes. I think I'm going to make the record on vinyl, though, because um, I'm, you know, sp I think I feel like, like my generation is even more inclined to see my little name spinning around than younger people because i know vinyl is cool and everything but to me it was my introduction to recorded music so i mean why wouldn't i want to see myself on a 12 inch you know record of course yeah, there's something about the production of this album that feels like vinyl is is a good direction to go i don't know why like it just sounds i'm so impressed by the sound of the record um, well thank you um, a lot of it had to do with the room, a tiny, tiny room. Um, a lot of it had to do with Aaron's, uh, um, ingenuity and talents, uh, you know, as far as engineering and, uh, you know, putting the, the tracks together. And a lot of it has, has to do with my weird ideas, you know, because I mean, think about it, uh, you know, it's got a ton of vocals on it. Like it just has an absurd amount of background vocals. 
And uh, part of that was I love, you know, the Beach Boys middle period. And part of it was I didn't have a band. Yeah. Wait, are the vocals you? Is yeah, it all I did, you? I did all the vocals. That's incredible. It sounds like a choir sometimes. Yeah, I've got a good range. That's serious. Yeah. For those that don't know, I've got a range. So, so uh, speaking of the Beach Boys middle period, you have one instrumental track on this album mm-hmm. called The Perfect Wave. Perfect so, Wave for Bruce Brown. Um, and that sounds like a dead ringer for like a lost track from a, from a, a Beach Boys record. Thank you, but it's, it's definitely not as good as what they would have done but certainly yeah. the like the aesthetic of it is oh, for sure. is well, that was, right is I that was, what you're going yeah, for yeah it was obviously yeah i was i was i wanted to make a surf record and um you know i mean it's got i mean really it doesn't sound that much like the beach boys the only thing from that's really beach it sounds to me more like other surf bands from that period you know um but it does have that surfer girl Uh, there's this thing that they do go from a a minor to a major that's very very brian wilson um i wrote that song it was going to be part of a group of songs all written for uh people that had departed this world uh recently that uh inspired me or or made it had an effect on me i mean it was just sort of this idea to write a bunch of songs about a, a specific thing because it seemed like a lot of people were were, were escaping uh, the mortal coil. And uh, that song um, I wrote uh, about um, the movie Endless Summer. And that's who Bruce Brown is. He was the director of the movie Endless Summer. Okay. And he died, you know, a couple of years ago. Interesting. And so I wanted to write a surf song. You know, and I thought it'd be cool because it's an instrumental. I mean, that was another thing. It's like, wow, you know, it'll be easier to write an instrumental than words about a person. See, that's the the concept ran out of gas because that's hard to do for ten or thirteen <laughs> tracks. You know. Yeah. So I wrote two. I wrote one for Anita Pallenberg, and I wrote one for Bruce Brown, which I think is cool because I had a lot of more a lot more famous people. Like I was going to write one for Sam Shepard and Harry Dean Stanton. And I, I, Bowie and uh, um, uh, Prince, I wasn't even going to touch because they were they were just too big. But uh, I, I like that the ones that I wrote were fairly uh, obscure, you know, or actually probably very obscure. <laughs> yeah, if you, I mean, who knows who Anita Pallenberg and Bruce Brown are? Speaking of, uh, I'm uh, waiting. I want to hear who. Who? I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Speaking of of that, would you play Anita for us? Really? Yeah. Oh, it's a good thing I brought my uh, my instrument. So Anita is written for uh, Anita Pallenberg, who uh, was Keith Richards' uh, longtime partner and mother of two of his children, uh, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, whose uh, birthday is today. Really? Yeah, today. So huh. you guys will know what day this was recorded by, uh, by uh, Wikipedia Googling uh, Keith Richards. Uh, but anyway, Anita was my first crush, you know, at least as far as I remember. And uh, she passed a couple of years ago. And uh, when I found out about it, 
it was a, it must have been in like a Facebook feed or something. And there was a photograph attached to it of, of a recent photo. Uh, so she was an old woman. And, uh, you know, she had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And the weird part is she was actually pushing a shopping cart, which seems, if you, if you look at the older photographs of her, you don't picture her pushing a shopping cart. But um, I wrote this song about my relationship or non-relationship, my imagined relationship, my one-sided relationship with uh, Anita Pallenberg, beautiful um, German-Italian actress. Anita, you were my desire, a boyhood fantasy. From the pages of books and magazines, Anita, so beautiful and perfect teeth Drove a glimmering smile That had a hold of my heart for a little while I'd sit and I'd dream of an aeroplane Carrying you and an entourage Up there the world is so far away Among the angels, clouds and stars Oh, that picture of you Holding Marlin, your long blonde hair hanging down You were on top of the world, the talk of the town to my eyes but not to my heart a cigarette pressed between two lips and lines pressed in a face that had overcome artifice and recovered grace so Anita 
I bid you adieu and a pleasant journey to the next Bordeaux. But how I wish you could know so very long ago you touched me. It's interesting for me to think about like that song is you talking about uh sort of your mindset in your childhood. It's really hard for me to imagine what like little Lewis Ledford was like. What what uh what were you like as a kid? Uh I was uh I was a terribly shy child. Um yeah, I'm uh, miserably shy. Really? Yeah. Hated school. Hated being singled out. Hated hated being uh, at all uh, uh, paid attention to. Yeah. That's what I was like when I was little. At what point did you decide it would be a good idea to become a performer? Well, I think... Um, Honestly, I had no choice. There is something different about being a performer as opposed to just being a shy person. You know, you kind of uh, control your environment to a degree. So whereas you are in front of everybody, you know, uh, you do have the mic. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of uh, dealing with people on your own terms. And uh, I, I took very natural... Uh, naturally to that concept. But, I mean, I, I wanted to play songs and I wanted to um, sing and I wanted to write and I wanted to do all those things and, I, you know, you got to get on stage to do it. And I found that I like performing quite a lot, although it does take a lot out of me because basically I'm a very shy person. And, yeah, you may not think I'm shy because I talk a lot, but uh, that doesn't mean I'm not shy, mm. you know. Maybe talking a lot is the only way I can get through <laughs> human human uh, interaction. So, can you talk about uh, how you got started as a songwriter or performer? I started playing guitar about fourteen, learning how to play it. But then I started playing in bands like immediately because that's the way you do. You know, I mean, my first. Uh, I mean, I was playing in bars I couldn't drink in. I mean, not a lot, but I mean, every once in a while high school dances and stuff like that. I mean, I've, I've, I've done this for a very, very long time. The first instance of you playing in a band that I could find is in a band called Used Carlotta. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what, what that was? Uh, Used Carlotta was a name I stole from a Francis Coppola movie. I played a gig one time, and the, the bathroom of the venue was way downstairs, and I went down in a tiny little bathroom, and then this guy like walks up, and he's like in the in the stall urinal section next to me. He's like, "I know where you stole your name from." I'm like, "Oh my God, where's this gonna go?" Says uh, Tom Waits. You stole that from Tom Waits. I'm like, "Okay, yes, I'm finished here. I'm going back upstairs." Um, but yeah, I stole it from Tom Waits, who wrote the music to a Coppola movie called uh, One from the Heart. Great soundtrack and a great movie. And the scene with Harry Dean Stanton where uh, and uh, Frederick Forrest was another great actor. 
um, uh, section called Used Carlotta, where Frederick Forrest takes a dipstick and he conducts a line of junked cars and their horns are blowing and their lights are flashing. It's a very uh, magical, like, realism moment in a, in a great movie I recommend. So I named the band after Used Carlotta section of that, which everybody seemed to love that name a lot. And um, we played in the 90s, mid-90s. Was this like folk music? Is it like the stuff that you're playing no, now? Well, kind of. It was at the dawn. The dawn. It was at the dawn. <laughs> it was at the dawn. Uh, of the emerging um, alt-country scene. Okay. Um, a lot of bands came out of that. And my band was part of that scene. So, like, I didn't play an electric guitar. I played an acoustic guitar. And we had a fiddle player. But we were just a rock band. Mm -hmm. But I was still playing all my stuff, so it didn't really sound that different. We played with a lot of rockabilly bands, too, which was always a weird, because we, I always played a lot of ballads, you know. Um, but, yeah, we were good. I mean, I thought we were good. And we ran up and down the road and, you know, played a lot of weird little bars. You know, we, we worked pretty hard. But I didn't, I didn't like it. You know, it was hard keeping a large... There was like five people in the band, and then uh, we added a, a woman uh, named Allison who started singing with us. And then it's just like the band got unwieldy, and uh, I started to feel like a lot of pressure and not wanting to travel and play music with a big band. And so I stopped, you know, and uh, became a solo performer pretty much after I took like a year to sort of uh, do other things. But I took that year and I wrote an album, and that album was uh, Reverie. And that came out in 2004. Yeah. By the time Reverie comes out, do you think of yourself as like a folk musician? Like, I'm, I'm going to do this thing, have my acoustic guitar, write my songs, and like sort of present Absol yourself absolutely. as Lewis Ledford? Absolutely, because it was, you know, I mean, this is the way I always put it. I was making exactly the same money. I mean, sometimes I don't make any money. When I do make money, I'd make about the same alone as I would with the band, you know? So I'm like, wow, this makes sense. And the timing was right because that's was happening. It's, I mean, I've really, my timing my entire life has been perfect. It's just my approach has not really been consistently good <laughs> as far as getting, you know, uh, making a, a decent living out of doing this but man my timing is right on i'm always doing the right stuff at the right time because like i used carlotta had been around for five years when oh brother where art thou hit the scene you know we already had a fiddle in the band you know so i mean we were there baby right but what i was again i think it goes back to what i was doing was kind of weird and didn't sound like you know gillian welch or, or david rawlings or jerry douglas or any of the other crew on that that thing so you know I don't. I, I mean, I I get the feeling that people have always. I mean, maybe I'm thinking too highly of myself, but I I get the feeling people don't get it mostly. You know, people that do get it really get it. You know what I'm doing, and and I get a lot of love, and I get a lot of kind words from people all the time. Or I would have quit a long time ago. You know, I'm not an idiot, but um, I don't think I, I don't think what I do is is wide enough to really click in everybody's wheelhouse or whatever it is. And I get that. Uh, but the, the 2000s were great, especially doing house concerts and, and little funny gigs like when I met Robert and playing in weird basements and stuff like that. I, I got a lot of pleasure 
out of that because uh, I've never liked stages. You know, I don't like being elevated and I don't like stage lights. I like to see the people that I'm playing music for and engage if I feel like it. Mm. You can't really do that in a big room. Yeah. So in 2004, you record Reverie. Mm-hmm. And then in 2007, um, you released Adios King. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, it's like a much more sort of stripped down record. It's just you and a guitar, essentially. Yeah. I can tell you why. Sure. Well, I came out to Bellingham and recorded an album um, at Ryan Anderson's studio up by uh, up Eldridge. And I, I joke, like, the first bar I ever had a drink in Bellingham was the Coconut Grove. How many people can say that? I guess if he flew in, you know, <laughs> and took a cab downtown. Yeah. So um, we recorded an album, uh, and it was, you know, back, that was when Robert had this same room deal. Everybody records at the same time. And, it's Robert Harrison Blake. Yeah, and I didn't know any of the musicians at the time, so he put the band together, and he was going to produce. Because we traveled quite a lot during that period, and we would talk about stuff. Right. And so we had this idea, because I had these songs, and I wanted to make a record. Well, I didn't quite know what I was getting into because it was a pretty small studio and there were a lot of musicians on this session. And I'd never done a session, like I'd never tried to do 12 songs in a single session before. And it was overwhelming. And uh, But it was cool because I, I got to meet a lot of people that I won't go into or maybe I will. I got, that's where I met Ben Wildenhouse and Dan Lowinger and... Jeff Gray and Jordan Rain, he played the drums, and um, Dylan Reek and uh, Teo Benson from Crying Shame, and also uh, Eric from Crying Shame was all on that that recording. And it was a lot of fun, and it was hit and run. I had, I, I was recorded and then head back, so I started recording this album out here um, early. And then Katrina happened, and I I had these two-inch tapes, you know, in this recording session, and I'm just like, you know what, I can't deal with this. And um, my friend Bob, who made uh, made uh, Reverie with me, Bob Roop, amazing uh, musician, played uh, uh, he was a um, bass player in a band called The Silos, and was also in Cracker. Was the bass player in hmm. Cracker? Uh, very great talented guy he said i'd like to make an album with you where it's just you and your guitar you know and he just happened to call right at the moment you know perfect time and uh so i went in and recorded adios king in a single session uh with bob so that album was recorded in you know like three or four hours wow i just played every song straight up into a microphone and that's how I made that album. And then uh, Andrew at, at Waterbug, I can't remember if he reached out to me or I reached out to him about putting it out. I don't remember how that worked. I want to think in my memory, it's like he must have said, when's that new album coming? But I don't imagine that really happened. But it, it, that's, you know, that's the way it does in my mind. And uh, so I just put that out. And then later, like two years later or so, I revisited the tracks that I made out here that's why the songs on uh, Tree Branch and Moonlight and Audios King are the same. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, yeah, I was confused because Tree Mansion Moonlight is an EP that you put out. It's like six yeah. tracks or something like yeah, that. Vinyl. But it came out three years after Adios King. And it's the same song. It's the same song with, Because with it band. was recorded before Adios King. And the rest of those songs oh. on Adios King are on, are on a hard drive at my house. So I've been thinking about revisiting that. Um, at the time, <clears throat> I, uh, I pretty much... Uh, didn't like the rest of them because there were there were there were sound issues with the original recording. Are you familiar with uh, Tree Branch? Mm -hmm. The way it sounds, yeah. You know, I doubled every vocal on it because the microphone and the placement. My voc my lead vocals were problematic on the original recording, in my opinion, circa two two thousand and whatever. And um, so I went back and I doubled every vocal huh. uh, just to add a little more. Space. I just figured that was the sound of the early 2000s, you know. Yeah. Uh, Robert, I don't think, well, I know for a fact Robert didn't like it. And uh, he said it sounds like, uh, uh, what did he say? It sounds like T-Rex. Because it sounds like T-Rex. Sounds like T-Rex. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I like T-Rex. I don't know. He never said, I don't know. I, I got the feeling he didn't like it, but who, who knows. So I have to say. So Robert, I if you like it, I'm sorry I'm saying that you didn't like it. I have to admit, if you don't like it, <laughs> screw you. I think it's great. I have to admit, I um, before I knew who you were. Now, how did this happen? I in I moved out of a. I was the last one to move out of a house that was like a group house for like ten years. You know, sort of rotating cast of characters. Mm -hmm. First house I lived in in Bellingham, and I took with me boxes of stuff that wasn't mine, but I was. You know, it was just like a bunch of like a bunch of CDs and stuff that had been left behind. I have a copy of Adios King that I did not purchase. Okay. That I like I, I think it came with me from the house that I moved out of in two thousand eight. So my knowledge of you precedes actually knowing who you were because of this Adios King record that was just yeah. sort of around. It's got a cool cover, huh? Yeah. I mean, it stands out. You look at it and go, oh, yeah. that it's, it's Gina Phillips. She painted that. It feels like that was, that record got uh, sort of the most notoriety. Like that sort of was the, the stepping stone into uh, what leads you to here, to Bellingham, to like your career transitioning in this way. Does that make sense? Not really. But I mean, you mean time-wise or what? Sure. I don't know. It feels, to me, I, maybe I mean, just, for you, obviously. Yeah, for you, me, it's you like. you took it with a bunch of junk from, a, it's from the, an apartment. It's the thing that I go, oh, now I know who Lewis is. Yeah. yeah I don't know. You know where I got the uh, the title of that? It was when we get, went into the house um, after the storm. Uh, you know, the way the floods come into those houses or any house that floods, it's like it picks up everything in the front, especially a shotgun, which is, you know, a long, skinny house, picks up everything and just moves it to the back of the house. And there's so many strange things like, um, you know, like, a, like a, a calculator, you know, like a hand calculator ended up in the toilet, you know, just randomly. You know, just like, it's just weird what happens when you go in. And, and a Rolling Stone magazine, see, Hunter Thompson had just died. And... Uh, a Rolling Stone magazine was glued to the floor of the house, and I scraped it up. And the page that survived that I could read was uh, Jan Werner's uh, um, acknowledgement of his relationship with Hunter Thompson. 
And he signed off by saying adios king. But he took that phrase from Kerouac, who said the exact same thing about uh, uh, Neil Cassidy when, mm. he, when he heard Neil had died. And my joke was, uh, and I meant this completely when I made that record. That record was potentially my swan song, you know? Like, okay, I'm checking out. Because I was doing a lot of running around and playing songs. I wasn't making a lot of progress, you know, but I was meeting a lot of friends and playing a lot of music with a lot of people. And, you know, um, things were going places, but Katrina sort of shut that down. And uh, I knew I was going to basically be, you know, in construction, reconstruction mode for quite a while. And uh, so it was kind of a, a goodbye to myself for a while. Mm. I don't, I've never told anybody that story. I'm sharing it with you for the first time. This episode is brought to you by Irish and Folk Mondays at Green's Corner. Every Monday, Jan Peters hosts a thriving Irish music session, followed by a stunning acoustic concert series featuring local, regional, and nationally touring artists performing a wide variety of folk and traditional music. Listeners and players alike can enjoy the great selection of food and drink available at Green's Corner, experience the age-old tradition of session playing with Bellingham's intergenerational Celtic music community, and revel in the world-class sounds of the feature performance. This month, Yon Songs Productions is proud to present Masters of the Plectrum and Bow, the Quick Draw String Band, Songs of the Raging Sea by Pint and Dale, and the contemporary Irish stylings of Galloglass. For showtimes and more, visit yonsongsproductions.com and follow Irish and Folk Mondays on Facebook. Irish and Folk Mondays at Green's Corner. If Mondays make you blue, come to Green's. At a certain point, you start coming to Bellingham and playing the Jamboree. Well, I always did. What you, but what, like, was that 2007 I came or to, 2000? I came to the Jamboree before Katrina. Okay. Yeah, I played either. I'm not sure I did 2004, but I know I did 2005, which would have been right before Katrina, like weeks. Right. Like, I mean, just, I mean, very close to. I know I did that. It's possible I did 2004. You know, I looked at the, I looked at, at one point Robert posted all the posters on the website and you see my name as much as anybody except for him and his dad. I mean, I've been consistently, you know, playing the Jamboree for a long time. So I played before Katrina. Okay. But I, I did skip the summer after, uh, uh, after Katrina because there was, construction that had to be done but i'd planned on coming so he's always been very sweet and you know offering me a spot you know mm. until i moved here and then I, I i only get on intermittently but probably more than i should you know so tell me about that how did you end up moving here i I'm, i fell in love for one thing you know uh that had a lot to do with it um i felt i needed to leave New Orleans. Um, uh, I was one thing I didn't know when I came out here is if I was going to stay. Um, I did pack enough stuff to stay for several months just to sort of see if I could uh, if this was a place for me. And I bet a lot of people moved to Bellingham like that because before I met Robert Blake, 
I didn't know Bellingham existed. I'm not sure I knew Washington State existed. I'd heard of Seattle, but you know, no, you know, you know, Washington is not the talk of the nation. <laughs> Sorry to tell you, people, that, but uh, you know, so I, I bet a lot of people move here and they're like, "Wow, am I going to stay? I'm going to go. What, what is it?" But uh, I brought enough stuff for a couple of months, and I got here and immediately felt, you know. Uh, cared for. And uh, I had friends. I mean, what's a better situation? You know, I mean, I knew you before I moved here. I knew, it's a, you know, I mean, I'd been coming here, you know, for a while. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got here. I fell in love uh, with uh, a woman and I fell in love with a, a weird little town. And uh, here I am. And I tell you, this, I, I say this a lot, and I think this is probably a good uh, sort of platform because maybe people will hear it more than the ones that are just standing around me at the time. Uh, I admire uh, my music peers here uh, greatly because uh, unlike a lot of places, uh, Bellingham seems to be a place where musicians play for just the joy of playing music. You know, it's uh, and that to me is inspiring and refreshing because uh, it just makes things so easy. You're just playing music. And I think that's terrific. Um, you know, and for the ones out there that are trying to get famous in Bellingham, you know, send me a postcard when that happens. I'd love to know. I'd, li I'd like to interview you and find out how that happened. Maybe a death cab for, for cutie we could... I already tried to get them on the show. They wouldn't. They won't do they it. Wouldn't do yeah. it. No. Did you call the right number? I called several numbers. <laughs> Sent a lot of emails. Okay. So speaking of your uh, musical peers in Bellingham, so you just wrapped up a more than month long residency with Kristen Ellen Zito, guest from episode number fifteen. Just go back one in the feed, and you'll be able to find her interview. Um, and you. You were in her band, essentially, mm -hmm. but not as a singer, as her sideman. Like you were playing electric guitar and mandolin. Mm -hmm. And as if, if you recall earlier in the program, I've only been playing it for like uh, a minute. So that's my question is like all of a sudden you're on a stage just filling in the solos in and playing sort of licks around, um, around another songwriter's music. So I, I want to talk about A, how you decided to do that and B, what it feels like to be, um, you know, you've played with a lot of people in your band playing solos around your stuff. What, uh, let's start with what made you decide, okay, I, I want to try and try on a different role. I'm not sure I gave it a lot of thought. Uh, one nice part is that, you know, I have the environment. Remember what I was just saying about musicians playing for the pleasure of playing? I don't feel any, I don't really feel any pressure here to worry about embarrassing myself on stage. And I don't even know that I'm at an age that I even care if I do. Um, the way, the reason I did it is, uh, Kristen asked me to play with her, and I'm thinking right now, you know, on the fly. I'm not sure if she asked me to accompany her or do a show originally <laughs> where I play my own stuff. 
I just remember her saying, do you want to play with me on this date? And I think I just showed up ready to play a few songs or something, which I did. Oh, and I bet it was terrible. You know, that first one that she and I did just by ourselves. Because we've been doing it for a while. Yeah. We've been playing. I've been learning her music for at least a year. So um, I should I should have it all down a lot better than I do. But I'm not naturally a side man because I don't, or side person, because I don't, um, I don't feel it's a natural place for me. You know, like I said before, I've never really bothered to learn how to do music properly. So as a, you know, musician, that, that complicates things. When I'm doing my own stuff, I can do anything because it's whatever I want it to be. But uh, so it's been a struggle, but I've, I've, I've had a lot of fun doing it. Um, wh so what are you doing? What, like, what do you do to prepare to play solo mandolin on a Kristen Allen Zito song? Uh, well, until I learn it, uh, do you remember Mel Bay? Remember how you would just write the chords down? Uh -huh. uh, I do that because I don't know the name of the chords. One day, I, I mean, I do. I mean, if I took the time, I you mean would. you're writing down like the finger positions <laughs> on the mandolin neck, like the, well, not on my the pointer neck finger itself, goes I, here. I, I have a cheat sheet, and yeah. then I do that, and then when I learn the song, because well, the the mandolin is a really interesting instrument, and I, I'm sure there's people that could explain this better than me, but it's hard to play if you're like just doing a melody line on a mandolin. It's hard to miss, you know. It's it's just, I don't know, something about the tuning. Uh, it's like you can kind of just, and that's not to say some people are amazing at it and know exactly what they're doing, but I can fake a mandolin lick pretty easy. Uh, knowing the chords are a little trickier because I have to actually know what they are, and they're, they're, the shapes are very different from guitars because there's not the same amount of strings. So you just sort of listen to the songs and play along over and over again and then eventually feel like you start to like, I want to actually know what, what the process looks like like what That's you're sitting it. in your living room you've got your mandolin in your hand yeah, you're listening to I a mean, record and, uh, and if you've come to see us live you can tell that I haven't done a whole lot of that because <laughs> <You know>, <laughs> again I said it's very hard to make a mistake but I, I, I still make mistakes um, I'm just learning I'm just like I do guitar you know yeah. and I'm having a lot of fun I just in fact I just bought a, uh, a new mandolin from Devin uh, Champlin uh, or Champlin Guitars uh, in the Leo. So I have a, I have an old Martin mandolin I play now. As we record this interview mm -hmm. today, the House of Representatives is voting on the impeachment of President Trump. Boom. I'm wondering what you feel like uh, your duty or maybe just a folk singer's role is in general in times like this? Like, do you feel like uh, as a writer, as a performer, you need to be saying something about sort of the historic time that we're living in? I do. Funny you should bring that up because my project that I'm working on now is, uh, uh, I'm calling it the political record. And uh, I don't know if it'll become a record, but uh, it'll become something. And I do think... Uh, it is our sort of uh, responsibility uh, in times such as these to make some noise 
and write about things that are important uh, politically and socially. And I think there's a lot of anthems out there um, just waiting to be written. It's just people got to write them. And um, yeah, because I think we're getting to a point, you know, I've been calling it the uh, the pitchfork and torch uh, uh, section of, of uh, you know, where we are. It's time to get out and make some noise. So are you writing songs? Like do you have political material that yeah, you're working, working on? working on it. Started working on it. Um, I took the uh, Empire Builder back in August um, from Chicago to Everett. and uh, That's a train route. Yeah. Amtrak route. Great. A great way. The prairie is a great way to empty your head and think about uh, uh, writing stuff. So um, I haven't done anywhere near as uh, much as I promised myself I would because... Um, you know, my goal is to have this group of songs finished before, uh, you know, the next election. And uh, hopefully I'll write a bunch of songs that will be meaningless after the election, you know. Like, uh, we won't have to worry about, uh, you know, the, the, what we're worrying about now. So uh, the third track on your new album is called Grand Corpulent Moon. Mm-hmm. Um and it's essentially like a broad autobiography, mm-hmm. right? You sort of each chorus and verse. Uh, it's mostly true. Yeah, and like, and you, you sort of place your biography against the social, cultural things that are happening in time. I feel like at this point in, in the interview, we've covered most of the things that you talk about to one degree, degree or another. So I wonder if you would play that song for us. I would be delighted. Maybe I should say I wouldn't mind, actually. Cambridge, Massachusetts, I got in it pretty deep. A poor little junko on IVB leaguered streets. I sang a song of sixpence about a grand copulent moon, and it was over in a second. Not a second over soon I thumbed a ride to Boston Where they offered me a hand And I declined the invitation Cause I didn't understand It all started in Virginia 1966 Just a little bit of nothing Down below the Mason Dicks Dogwood and magnolia trees Coca-Cola and sweet teas Summers by the swimming pools Brothers breaking all the rules I dreamed a song of sixpence About a grand corpulent moon And it was over in a second Not a second over soon Well I grew up straight and grew up strong While Watergate and Vietnam Flickered on the Magnavox As I broke out in chicken pox Russia had her sights on us Children climbed aboard the bus Parents raised an awful fuss Didn't know who else to trust The gas lines formed around the block The old Ford ran on fumes It was no age of innocence Whitey landed on the moon They got this saying down in Texas About how not to make a mess 
But I messed around there anyways Just like all the rest I sang my song of sixpence About a grand copulent moon And it was over in a second Not a second over soon As the gang and I together Played like kings upon the hill Those fires that surrounded us Those fires are burning still As we wished upon a lone star I packed my meager grip And climbed aboard a carol van That took a mighty trip I took her love for granted But I guess it had to be The open road was calling But was it calling me? Well, they dropped me off in New Orleans at Touffe, rice and beans. Heat just like a mother's womb, the air a jasmine perfume bloom. Jukebox full of rhythm blues, picayune, ignore the news. High life at that sugar park, big muddy churning in the dark. Won me over in a second, not a second over soon. I sang a song of sixpence and Euclid du la lune. That party rolling and Mother Nature intervened And destroyed all that surrounded us in one chaotic scene The poor ones didn't stand a chance Scattered by the circumstance The rich fed little better Still they grudgingly picked up the bill New York City, Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C. Nashville, Nashville, it's all the same to me. I sang a song of sixpence about a grand copulent moon, and it was second after second, after second after soon. Well, I was whirling like a dervish, I was a dervish wreck. I said, Hooray for Hollywood, she bit me on the neck. And I found my way to Washington up on Puget Sound. I pitched my tent and found true love and finally settled down. But never for one second or one second for one soon will I chase my tail from hill to dale the way I used to do. Well, I've sung my song of sixpence about a grand corpulent moon. And it ain't over for one second or one second for one soon. I've had my fun, don't doubt me, son, this ain't my final tune. My memories are like souvenirs and flashes sometimes reappear like nickels from a slot machine or tremors from a fever dream or sweet familiar faces in all types of places that didn't have to like me but so often they just do as I sing a song of sixpence and a grand copulent Thanks so much, Lewis. You're welcome, David. Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm so happy that uh, you you um, accepted my application. <laughs> well, it was very forceful. Well, you know, <laughs> you got if you you got to go out and get what you want. You know, you, you gotta 
got to assert yourself. If you want something, you just go out and grab it. That's the way I, I that's my credo. It's the way I work. I appreciate that. No, it's not the way I work at all. No, it actually worked out perfectly. Yeah. Well, um, I'm happy to come back. Every week I could be your sidekick. That'd be kind of cool. You know, like the guys on the shows? I could be the guy that sits over on the side and laughs a lot. You could be the Robin to my Howard Stern. Whatever that means, yes. Sorry, you could be the Robin to my Batman? <laughs> no, I don't like... I, I was more of a... Um, who do I like? Uh, I was more of a Sergeant Rock kind of guy. I was thinking about it. I was just going through all means. of... Well, all of the, the comic book guys, I was like, who did I like? And I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't like any of those guys. I liked the ones that were about uh, ghost stories and the army. I was into the, like, the, the militaristic... Uh, comic books, you know, the guy with the cigar and the machine gun. That was, that was more my style. Not so much the capes and the kryptonite. <laughs> and and he was a really veteran. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks again to Lewis for his time and his music. I can't think of a better way of starting a new year of interviews from Little City Big Sound than with that one. Thanks again, Lewis. This episode's interview was recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi. Thanks, Joel. Our interviews are engineered and mixed by Andy Rick. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick. Our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the Bell Pod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. We do have two more podcasts being produced at the moment, Building Bellingham and The Subdued Radio Hour. Uh, Those are both projects that Andy and I help produce, and uh, we're really excited about sharing with you guys. So check those out, Building Bellingham and The Subdued Radio Hour, wherever you find your podcasts. Before we go, we'll leave you with a track from Actually, Lewis Ledford's newest album. Here's the Ballad of Colorado Luke. Come gather round people a story I'll sing About a brave young man who did most anything He left Colorado for the Pacific Northwest To follow the beat of his heart Like Gabriel with a trumpet, Orpheus with his lyre The music ran through him like thunder, like fire And the gods, they took notice, and they wagered a bet And they watched as the poor young man suffered and sweat They tied down his arm and dared him to play And in no great surprise, he played better that way But like old Joe before him, they wouldn't let up Till he drank every drop that they poured in his cup He traveled the world, made all kinds of friends The music, his message, the means and the ends And the gods became jealous and they twisted the screws Till the young man did the only thing left bowed his head, but he did not pray. He put his shoulder to the wheel and continued to play. 
And the music got better, got bitter, got sweet It put smiles on our lips, it put dance on our feet But the gods didn't give up, cause that's not what gods do They made a wreck of his body by the time they were through But he kicked and he bucked like a mule to the end I'm proud to say this brave young man was my friend He left the Pacific Northwest for parts unknown Yet we carry the seeds in our hearts he has sown Like Gabriel with a trumpet, Orpheus with a lyre Grand feeling like thunder, like fire, like a game with a trumpet, or with a lyre. The music ran through him like thunder, like fire.